Acts chapter 9. Thank you. I appreciate the prayers of every one of you who... Mike's getting me back. (laughs) I appreciate the prayers. Uh, I want everything that comes out of my mouth to be what God wants it to be, not my own words. I'm just amazed how God confirms from day to day the things that that He lays on your heart to preach. Um... This morning, I get up early this morning, and uh, and I'm reading through, I've just been reading through lately, uh, a little book called Stand Firm that Lifeway puts out. And once you know, it's on the exact topic that I'm preaching on this morning. Coincidence? No. That's God confirming and reinforcing the things that he's laid on your heart this week uh, to share. And I'm so thankful that he does that in various ways. But the title of the message this morning is Boldness Amidst Fear. Boldness Amidst Fear. You know, fear can be a very crippling thing. For many years, I was completely afraid of the dark. Yes, I know. Big monstrous Ken Todd. Afraid of the dark. Uh, Even as an elementary kid, I uh, I didn't like going outside after dark by myself. And if I had to... Mom and Dad left something out in the car. They made me go get I wanted the biggest flashlight I could have. Because even as like a like fifth or sixth grader, even though I was the biggest kid in my class, I wanted something to take with me. So my dad, and back in the days before mag lights were cool, he had a big mag light. So I made sure that when I went outside after dark, I had my big mag light. Because I didn't know what was going to be out there. Uh, I'm thankful that God has uh, given me the ability to overcome that now as an adult. And uh, maybe some of you still have that fear. I can remember um, working at a boys' home uh, in Wisconsin. We were literally about 27 miles into the woods. Kid you not. I mean, you hit the, you left Northland campus, 27 miles into the woods is where this boys' home was. And I loved being out there in the middle of the woods in this setting. Uh, but every once in a while, we'd have a student come into the home who is from the big city. And it's amazing to me that those kids felt more at home in the middle of the night in a city street than they did in the woods in northern Wisconsin. And uh, we had this uh, six-foot-four kid come in from inner-city Chicago, and he was deathly scared of the dark. And I remember thinking it was his night to uh, do the horses that evening in the darkness. And oftentimes it would be so dark you couldn't see your hand right here. And I remember thinking, he has been a tear to everybody. He has picked on everybody. He has you know, belittled everybody. Yeah, I think he'll just give a little taste of his own medicine. So about 20 minutes before he went out to do the horses that night, I kind of swept out and you know, crept out and hid behind a tree down just before he got to the barn. And just before he come walking, I went, Rah! He jumped. Eat his pants, start crying. Six foot four kid. I almost felt bad. I didn't feel bad. I just laughed. <laughs> he got a dose of his own medicine. Fear can be a crippling thing. I know I'm a bad guy, ain't I? Um, it was funny, though. You had to have been there. In the text today, we see a man who was hesitant to do what God was telling him to do, mainly because he was afraid. 
And for good reason. And before we get into the specifics of the story, let's see what the text tells us about this man named Ananias. So if you would, follow along as I begin reading with verse 10. I'm going to read down through verse 22. It says, There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. Get up and go to the street called Straight. The Lord said to him, To the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Since he is praying there, in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so he can regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias left and entered the house that he placed. Then he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, he is the Son of God. But all who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on his name and then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew more capable and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Messiah. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have this morning to look at your word. And I ask, God, that you might, uh, Lord, allow us to learn those things that you'd have for us to learn. Be reminded of those things that maybe we once have learned and have forgotten. But, Lord, help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And I ask, God, that you would speak to our hearts in such a way, Lord, this morning, that we would know that it's you. And, Lord, that we would be obedient and, and respond the way you'd have us for us to respond. And we'll give you the praise and the glory, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what does the story, what does this text tell us about the man Ananias? I think very clearly there are at least four things that we can learn about this man. And the first thing is this. Ananias was a disciple. He was a disciple. And that's very important to to consider this morning as we think about our own area of committedness to Christ. So I want to give you an example this morning, or a definition this morning, of what is a disciple. And I think we can see clearly there are at least three or four aspects of being a disciple of Christ. Number one, a disciple is one who follows his master. You see this most often in history, not only in the spiritual realm of Jesus and his disciples, and his disciples being his shadow everywhere he went, but you see it also in the world of martial arts. There are those who want to learn everything that their master has to offer so that they can in turn uh, replicate or duplicate what they have learned, what they have gained as far as knowledge is concerned. So a disciple, first of all, is one who follows his master. Number two, a disciple learns everything that his master can teach him. It's important that the disciple learn everything that his master can teach him. 
There are going to be things in life that we are going to learn that we say, well, what is the purpose of this? When am I ever going to use this in life, right? We went through school, and you have those uh, weird math tests, and you think, when am I ever going to use this? Only Mike Cosgrove uses those things. Um, the rest of us don't. Um, but they come, in, they come in handy for certain circumstances. But a master is going to teach everything he knows, and the disciple is going to learn everything he can from his master. And then number three, he puts into practice everything he has learned. You see, a disciple is not just somebody who says, well, I'm a disciple, and then does his own thing. A disciple puts himself underneath the authority, underneath the leadership, underneath the tutelage of somebody who knows much more than he does. So a disciple is one who follows his master. And a master can lead, but if you're not willing to follow, you're not a disciple. And that's true in every area of life. If you are unwilling to learn... You cannot be a good disciple. So a disciple is one who follows his master, learns everything that his master can teach him, and then puts into practice everything he has learned. And I think we see a great example of this of John chapter 8, verse 31, where it says very clearly that a disciple is a person is a disciple when he does what he is supposed to do. So, question I have this morning is: Am I a disciple? That's the very first thing that we read about in Ananias in Acts chapter 9 and verse 10 that there was a disciple named Ananias. He was one who followed his master, learned what his master could teach him, and then put into practice. Furthermore, a disciple is three things. And I think if you would just for a moment, turn your Bibles over to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Just back a few pages. Beginning in verse 25, you have probably some type of heading over your Bible, over this text of Scripture that says something along the lines of the cost of following Jesus, the cost of discipleship, so to speak. I want to read down through verse 33, beginning in verse 25. It says, Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to him, Now let me just give you, give you a mindset just for a second here. It's something to think about. The crowds are always willing to follow somebody. The crowds were following him, but not everybody in the crowd was a disciple. Not everybody who followed Jesus wanted ever to learn everything Jesus had to offer them. The crowds were there, and he begins to notice this, and he, says, and he addresses the crowd in such a way that they begin to understand the importance of their commitment to following him. So he says in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to make fun of him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. The first thing I want you to understand about a disciple, according to John or Luke 14, 26, is that a disciple loves God more than anyone else. He loves God more than anyone else. 
You see this right away in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He said, is God advocating through Jesus Christ's words here that I have to hate my family? That's absolutely not the interpretation. That is not what Jesus Christ is saying here. He is saying this, in comparison, you need to love me more than anyone else in your life. That's it. Very simply put, love me more. I wonder how often in our lives we can really, truly, honestly before God say that. I think there are chapters in our life where we do really good, and then there's chapters in our life that we really stink at it because we let our selfishness get involved. But from day to day, he says, a disciple needs to love God more than anyone else. And it's my own selfishness that impedes that. It's my own selfishness for the things of this world that hinders me from giving and going all in for God. We see, we live in a world where people are committed to a lot of things, but God is just one of them, or a part of them. If you would this morning, take your Bible, keep your finger in Luke 14, but turn over to Luke chapter 9 just for a moment. Back just a few pages, Luke chapter 9. And we see a good example of what he's talking about here. In Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 57. It says, As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. You know, that is a huge, huge statement, isn't it? I mean, I will follow you wherever. I mean, they are enamored with what Jesus was doing. I'm sure the word was out on the streets that he's a man that does miracles. I mean, this guy's going to be the savior of the world. He might even be the political reader. I mean, people are thinking all kinds of things. And there's the one who says, I will follow you wherever. And he says, Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You still want to follow? Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first let me go bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye in those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Several things I want you to notice about this passage. Right away in verse 15, Verse 58, he says, Foxes have dens, birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has not a place to lay his own head. If you follow, you may have to sacrifice some things. God may ask you to set aside some of the, the comforts of this world to, for that which is far greater impacting. He may ask you to sacrifice some of the things that this world has to offer you to do what I'm asking you to do. You may, He may not, but he may. Secondly, you see, the follower says, well, first let me go bury my father. And he said, let the dead bury their dead. What, what, what the man was saying is literally this. Uh, you know, my father's up in years, possibly. Maybe he's getting a little bit older. You know, you know Jesus, I want to follow you, but can, can I just stick around my house long enough to see my father until he passes away? I mean, it might be a few years, might be a, you know, it might be 10 years, but he's up in age. I don't, I don't know when he's going to die, but let me, let me deal with him first. Let me take care of him. Then I will go follow you know what that's called? Serving Jesus and following God on our own terms. And that's the world that we live in most often, is it not? I mean, I want to follow God, but let, let me give you the parameters, God. Let me give you the, the circumstances and guidelines by which I can, I can fully devote myself. 
You know, we live in a world, and I'm guilty of it. We live in a world, it's, it's like leftovers in a microwave. 30 seconds here, a minute there, because to really take time to make a meal is what? It's time-consuming. And to get all the dishes out, it's, it makes a mess. And it's so much easier to go out to eat, it's so much easier to stick a, a tube steak in the microwave... To warm something up. And unfortunately, that carries over into our Christian life too. We give God little bits and pieces of our time. Rather than giving the world the leftovers, we give God the leftovers. I'm convinced of it. I want to serve God, but I want to serve God on my terms. I want to serve God, but I want to do it how I'm comfortable doing it. I want to serve God, but only within the skill set that I think I have to offer. And he says, let the dead bury their dead. And he goes on and says to another follower, I'll follow you, Lord, but, but first let me go say goodbye. He says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What happens, and I'm not a farmer, but I used to hear this from my youth pastor who was a farmer his entire life. He said, if you're in that tractor going down, he said, in one of the first starting rows, he said, if you look back to me, see if your row is straight, what happens to the tractor? It varies. He said, maybe not much, but it does. And you look back and you see the line is not real straight. He says, Jesus Christ says, you look forward. Don't look back. The person who looks back is not fit. See, we can go forward and say, man, I wish I, if I wasn't following God, I'd be over. The... I always wonder what if. No. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I don't look back. I forget those things. So first of all, from Luke 14, 26, a disciple loves God more than anyone else. In verse 27, we see another principle. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, what's the words? Cannot be my disciple. So number two, we see that a disciple denies himself and takes up his cross. He denies himself. Is that not contrary to the culture that we live in? And let me just say this before we get forward. As you look in Acts chapter 9, verse 10, it says, Ananias, a disciple, that word mathetes is the word for disciple in the Greek language. It's the same word that we find in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 27. Mathetes, it's the same word. So we know that he was one, so far, who loved God more than anyone else. He was one who denied himself and take, took up his cross. He was willing to do what he, whatever God wanted him to do. But he's willing to deny himself. Because it's not about me. Because if it's about me, I'm not going there. Trust me. If it's about me, I'm not moving to New York. If it's about me, I'm not going to Liberia. If it's about me, I'm not going to work at that company. If it's about me, I'm not going to fill in the blank. See, life is not about me. It's not about you. But that's totally countercultural to the world that we live in. Uh, keep your finger there in Luke chapter 14, but turn over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want you to get a little glimpse of the world that we live in. Verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. says, But know this, difficult times will come in the last days. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers without self-control, brutal without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. But notice right away in verse 2, for people will be lovers of self. You know, what's going to keep me from denying myself and taking up the cross? Loving myself more. Is that not the world that we live in? And what sets us apart from the world and the people in this world that we live in? Should be a love for God and love for others. Because that was a great commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. It doesn't say love yourself. But that's going to be the very thing that keeps us from denying ourselves and taking up our cross. Are we willing to do that? And not only that, in Luke chapter 14, verse 28, this is not the third thing, but just as a side note, in verse 28 says, For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? There's an aspect of discipleship that considers the cost of the commitment. It's kind of a hobby horse of mine. We're committed to so many things, but are we committed to God? We're committed to the athletic teams. We're committed to our hobbies. We're committed to everything. But are we committed to God? It used to irritate me when I was a youth pastor. There are sports every night of the week, except for Wednesday night and Sundays. Can't even say that now. Because now tournaments are on Sundays, and Wednesday night's not considered a church night for anyone anymore. Our world has changed. Our culture has changed. The things that we used to do around the center of the local church is no longer the case. Culture has changed. But the cost of the commitment is very little in the thought process. A friend of mine, this may irritate some of you, I, I went to a conference a couple years ago and a, a fellow that was there wrote a book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. That was the title of the book. Growing up, how many of you were familiar with that phrase, you need to ask Jesus into your heart? Question. Where is that in the Scripture? Where is it? I understand the process. I understand the, the philosophy, the reason behind it. But here's the problem with it. If all I do is ask Jesus in my heart, but I really haven't committed my life to following Him, if all it is is a fire insurance plan, am I truly a child of God? Think about it. Ernest Ainsley, remember how he used to get on TV? Just say this prayer! And he's high-pitched screaming. Yeah, you've heard it. Just say the prayer! No. It's not just about saying a prayer. It's not just about saying, Jesus, come into my heart and save me. It's more than that. There's a commitment in following Christ that, first of all, loves God more than anyone else, that secondly, denies himself and takes up his cross, and number three, according to the text in verse 33, and every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple, according to verse 33, is willing to forsake all that he has. Am I willing to forsake all that I have to follow Christ? You know, He may never ask you to do that. 
But what if he does? What if he does? A couple years ago, I preached on the similar topic, and we talked about these one-way missionaries who, rather than taking suitcases and trunks, had a wooden coffin built, and they would put everything inside their coffin and have that shipped over with them on a ship because they had no idea of returning, no, no concept of coming back. They were all in. I wonder, would we be willing to do that? Here's the problem, though. I'm told, according to the statistics in the polls, that we now have more missionaries coming to America than America has sending out to other countries. Is that not sad? Think about that. The world that we live in, I believe now is a postmodern Christian culture. Where it used to be at our bases and at our roots. Do you realize that if the first half of our presidents were itinerant preachers in this country? Do you realize that the first megachurch was in the capital of our country? Thousands used to gather there on Sundays for prayer and preaching. Not no longer the case today. Do you realize that half of the presidential busts that are in the rotunda are preachers and there's plaques to that effect? It's not our country anymore. And unfortunately, we're seeing the result of it in the world that we live in. Are we willing to forsake all that we have to be his disciple? He may never ask it, but what if he does? Are you willing? In Mark chapter 10, verse 17 says this. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not uh, defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all those from my youth. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was stunned at his demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. See, when it really comes down to it, a disciple is willing to give up. He may never have to. But there's that thought that if God asks me, am I willing to give it up? And the rich rich young person, ah, well, God, I've done this and this and this and this, but go sell everything and follow me. Wasn't willing to do it. Then he goes on here. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? But the disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So they were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. These three things that we see that earmark 
the definition of a disciple. Loves God more than anyone else. He denies himself and takes up his cross. And number three, is willing to forsake all that he has. That was the discipleship mentality that was in the life of Ananias. Number two, characteristic that we see about Ananias. Not only was he a disciple, but number two, Ananias listened to the Lord. So well, how do I know that? God's Word says that uh, right away here in verse 10, once again, he says, And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord. Here I am. He was willing to listen. He was willing to listen to God. Question, how do you hear somebody? I think a few weeks ago I talked about this idea that now, barring smartphones and intercom systems, setting those aside, but when somebody's in the upstairs and someone else is down in the basement and one is yelling for the other, guess what? It's a little bit hard sometimes, right? I know in today's mentality, you just kind of grab your smartphone and say, hey, you upstairs, come on down here. I need you for a minute. But before cell phones, when one was down in the basement and the other one's upstairs, how do they communicate? It's kind of hard, isn't it? yell and scream, and the the word that you predominantly hear is, what? What? I can't hear you. What? And it's so easy to yell and scream, what? I can't hear you, than it is just to go and meet the person, right? Because that takes energy and effort. We don't want to walk someplace. We're lazy. But how do the two communicate? They come together and they meet. How do you know when God is speaking? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. You get close. You get close. And there's no shortcuts to this. You have to get close to God if you want to hear what he's saying. Primarily through this right here. And you communicate back with him right here through prayer. And God opens up doors. One of my favorite passages of all Scripture is in John 10. Turn there just for a moment. I won't read the whole thing, but I want to read a couple of verses of it. John chapter 10. Ananias listened to the Lord. Now think about this. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, I assure you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now I want you to get a picture here. Here's the sheep going in and out of the doorway of the pen, of the pasture. The shepherd is in the doorway. He sleeps in the doorway. Nothing comes in, nothing goes out, except for the shepherd move it and allow him to do so. So the shepherd calls the sheep by name, and the sheep respond. So verse 3 again, The doorkeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. And they will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. What's the principle here? They know each other. And because they know each other, they listen to one voice. Question. Do we have a lot of voices calling out our name in this world that we live in? People calling us from a lot of different directions? People wanting a piece of your time? 
people wanting you to do this or that, people having expectations on you. That's the world we live in. But when we're following God, we have to be train ourselves to listen to one voice, His. And how do we know? We get close. Over and over, talks about this fact that they follow and a stranger they'll not follow. It's a commitment. Ananias listened to his Lord and responded. Number three, Ananias was afraid to do what the Lord told him to do. He was afraid. Um, fear is, a, as I said earlier, a crippling thing. But we see this in verse 13 and 14. It says, Lord, Ananias answered him, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. <laughs> verse 21, But all who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on this name? And then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests. Saul had a reputation. You know why he had a reputation? He earned it. Because of who he was, because of what he was doing, he went out of his way to find those who were following Christ, who were calling on his name, to arrest them, bring them back to the chief priest, and then let whatever happen to him that would happen to him. You see, prior to the conversion of Saul, he was religious, but he was not saved. He was sincere, but he was sincerely lost. But when Christ came into his life, everything changed. But the reputation that he had before he became a child of God was not a good one. He was destroying the church, or seeking to destroy the church. Ananias was afraid for good reason. You know, most of us have a natural fear of something, don't we? Um, I was doing some research this week, and uh, I found two different surveys that were recently taken about what people in America are afraid of. Um, the first survey kind of put it into different categories. Let me just share this. One of the categories, what, is the, what, is the, what situation makes you most afraid? 37% walking alone at night on a city street. 37%. Being stopped for a traffic violation. Number two at 27%. Don't do wrong, you don't have to worry about it. Number three, 15% of people being warned of turbulence while they're in the airplane. I'd be afraid of that. 10% having your annual physical. Number four that was. And then number five, the, the most of, of the total list of people and the things what they're most afraid about from day to day, answering a phone call without caller ID. I don't know who it is. Click. I'm not answering that. How many do that? Let's be honest. Right. I do too. Which of the following fears do you think is the most ridiculous? Well, people said the fear of clowns is the most ridiculous, 50%. But we won't go into those. Whose wrath are you most afraid of? Population here says 50% are most afraid of God. 57% of people polled were afraid of God's wrath. Which I find that interesting when half our world is unsaved. and don't have a relationship with him. 
Uh, 15% that said their spouse, probably for good reason. Uh, 10% said parents, and the last uh, little bit, 7% was their boss. One more. Which of the following do you fear will end humanity? 35% nuclear war. 23% deadly virus. 15% rapture. 15% global warming. warming. And then 8% an asteroid hitting the earth will end humanity. Crazy. That was from one magazine. Then one more. This was taken from Time magazine just recently. And these are the top 10. Number one is corruption of government officials. Number two is cyber terrorism. Number three is corporate tracking of personal information. Uh, then government tracking of personal information. Then bio warfare. Then identity theft. Then economic collapse. Then running out of money for the future. And then credit card debt or credit card uh, fraud. People are afraid of a lot of things. Um, as I said in my devotions this morning, I read a statement by F.B. Meyer. He said this, Where Jesus is, fear need not conquer. Where Jesus is, fear not, need not conquer. And then he said this, God incarnate is the end of fear. And the heart that realizes that he is in the midst, Jesus in the midst, will be quiet in the middle of alarm. I love that. God incarnate is the end of fear, and the heart that realizes that he is in the midst will be quiet in the middle of alarm. We have no reason to fear if God is on our throne. Ananias was afraid to do what the Lord told him. Question, have you ever made a list of what you're afraid of? I encourage you to do it. And then give it to God. Give it to God. Because there's a lot of things that make a lot of us fear. Sometimes it's being alone. Something so simple as just being alone. A spouse or loved one dies and now you're alone. That that's, can be fearful. Or developing a sickness. Or that very real, I wonder if I do have enough income to survive till I die. Those are very real fears. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Have you given those fears to God? And let God deal with it. It comes down to either God is capable and sufficient or he's not. All of us face those kinds of things. But where God is in the midst, he's also in the midst of the alarm. Spiritually speaking, some of you have fear of doing what God may be asking you to do. I mean, I mean, if I, if I do what God asks me to do, I mean, he may ask me to be a teacher, and that means I have to get up. One of the other not-as-high things was public speaking. I don't want to get up in front of people. God may ask you to do that. Or if I, if I submit to what God's asking me to do, he may send me on a mission trip. Well, if you don't want to go, send me. I'll go. <laughs> no, but he may be asking you. And it may be hard. He may ask you to sacrificially help someone in a very significant way. And you're thinking, if I do this, I'm not sure what the outcome will be. Bottom line is, you're just a steward of everything God has given you anyway. Right? 
It's not yours. You think it's yours, but it's not yours. It's God's. And he can take it away in a heartbeat. And there are many significant unknowns. But where Jesus says, fear need not conquer. I mean, Ananias had a right to be afraid. Right? I mean, here it is. He's going out. And, 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 and you know, Ananias, I want you to go to this place where, where Saul is. He's waiting for you. I've given him a vision that you're coming and you're going to ask for him. But God, but, but God do, you, do, you know, do you know this man? Do you, do you know what he's done? Is it wrong to be afraid? Question, is it wrong? No, it's not wrong. It's wrong to let your fears consume you. It's wrong that when your fears dictate what you do and don't do. It's wrong when your fears are greater than your faith. Fear is a, is a natural thing. But here's what I want you to see lastly. That Ananias obeyed the Lord despite his fears. That's number four. Ananias was the disciple. Ananias listened to the Lord. Ananias was afraid to do what the Lord told him to do. But number four, Ananias obeyed the Lord despite his fear. We see this down in verse 17. So Ananias left and entered the house. And then he placed his hands on, on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias obeyed the Lord despite his fears. All I can say is this, that when you do what God tells you to do, you're not alone. You're not alone. He goes with you. He goes before you. He comes after you. You need not fear. What is the significance of Ananias obeying in this text? I believe this. God wanted to work through Ananias. How cool is that? I mean, think about this. Paul, who would go on to write much of the New Testament... Who was at the beginning, the grassroots, the, the start of his, his earthly ministry? Yes. Ananias. How cool is that to say, yeah, I remember Paul when he, when he first got started. I mean, God used him. He wanted to work through him. How cool is that? Can you imagine being the person who led D.L. Moody to the Lord? Can you imagine being the person who, uh, you know, uh, who witnessed the Charles Spurgeon? And say, you know what? I'm, that, that's cool how God got, I got to be used. Ananias was right there in the beginning. And God just showed him something great that, hey, it's not about you, Ananias. I'm working through you. So go do it because I told him you're coming. He got to be a part of it. How cool is that? What does God want to do through your life? Despite you. Despite your skills or the lack thereof despite your abilities or the lack thereof. What does God want to do through you? And I believe God wanted Ananias to learn some things here. Learn some things like, trust me. I'll do what I say I'm going to do and you're okay. Just trust me. Things like, have faith. I know what I'm doing, even though you don't. Just trust me. Have faith in me. I'm working things out for my glory, not yours. You're worried about your life? That's just a little thing in the picture here. Because in the big picture, even though I'm sending you, and he's going to, you're going to, I mean, think about this. 
he puts his hand on him and his scales come off his eyes. A couple of verses later, he baptizes him. How cool is that? God wanted Ananias to learn some things through his obedience that God's in control, that God's going to do what only God's going to do. And because of that early obedience, God really allowed him to grow. And there was fear amongst the other disciples, too. They weren't, they weren't without fear. Look at verse 21. But all who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on his name? And then came before the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priest? Verse 22. But Saul grew more capable and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Messiah. I mean, his whole life turned upside down. His whole life changed. His direction changed. His outlook changed. And God used the little man named Ananias and his obedience to help point him in the right direction as he got to start an earthly ministry. I don't know what God will do through your obedience. I have no idea. It may never be read about. And guess what? That's okay. To me, it's all in the fact that I know that I can stand before God and say, I've done what, I, what you've asked me to do. I've been committed. And Nice was a disciple who listened to the Lord and through his fear obeyed regardless of what the outcome may be. What is God asking you to do? Before you will do anything for the Lord, you have to decide whether or not you're going to be committed to Him. It comes down to are you committed? If you're wrapped up in self, you're not committed. It comes down to my commitment. Am I willing to follow? Am I willing to forsake all? Am I willing to learn everything that He has for me to learn so that I can turn around and use it and apply it to life? Am I willing to follow close so I can listen to Him and learn? Observe everything that he has for me. God's word says be doers of the word, not hearers only. I'm afraid that we've become a generation of hearers. When you hear something, we agree with it. Say, oh, that's good. But what happens after we leave the door? What happens after we get in our car and go home? Where everyone that we know knows us well. How's life then? So that's where it really hits the rubber hits the road. Because everyone around you at home knows how you really are. And God knows how you really are, and whether you're truly following, whether you're truly committed. And Nice is a great example. I think he's like one of us in many regards. He is a disciple. Uh, he listened to the Lord. He was afraid to do what God told him to do. But even though he's afraid, he still did it. I hope that can be said of us. Amen? Despite the fear, despite the outcome, just do it. Just trust him. Love that. God incarnate is the end of fear. And the heart that realizes that he is in the midst will be quiet in the middle of alarm. What's your alarm? 
Financial? Obedience in some other area? I, I, I don't know what your alarm is. Maybe you say, oh, I don't have any. <laughs> Watch out. You might. But what's God wanting to do in and through you? Will you do it? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have this morning once again to look at your word. Lord, to seek to apply it to our hearts and our lives. Lord, I pray that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. That we'd be obedient to what you have us to be obedient to. So, Lord, work in our hearts, work in our lives. 